Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. I was surprised. I thought you might try again to to jump the gun. (laughs) No, I thought I'd go back to what feels (laughs) comfortable. (laughs) Nora, guess what? It's the longest day of the year. We're recording on the 21st. Oh, I didn't know it was the longest day of the year, but isn't it the 20th (laughs) right now? We're definitely Uh, recording on the 20th, um, but that's okay. (laughs) We all, we all lose days sometimes. Um, I don't know how to respond to that. Is it really? <laughs> yeah, it is. It is definitely the 20th. <laughs> oh, okay. Whatever. Cool. Yeah, great. It's not the longest day. I thought I was wasting my longest day by having um, done nothing uh, with it. And so thank you. Uh, but by the time you all hear this, it's already going to be shrinking days and winter's just around the corner. So <laughs> Sorry about that. So no, it wasn't that. That wasn't what I wanted you to guess. Oh, okay. What is it? But our listeners might be very happy to hear, those of you who did not turn your email notifications off on Patreon, like I told you to several times, if you didn't want to get all of these updates because we were finally updating our podcast uploads on Patreon and we were over a year behind, we are so close to done. We have less than 10 left to go. So fear not, it's almost over. (laughs) Boop, boop. That is great news. Excellent news. And speaking of Patreon, (laughs) we have some people to thank, Nora. Yes, we totally do. This week, we have to say a very big thanks to Julia, Bess, Robert, Kirk Van Houten's drawing of Dignity, And Janice, thank you so much for supporting the podcast. We really, really appreciate it. Who's drawing of dignity? Is that Matt Loretto again? (laughs) (laughs) That's going to be a reference that the folks that get it are going to love it. And I'll say it again. It was Kirk Van Houten's drawing of dignity, which my sister-in-law actually embroidered for me uh, once, and I have it. So Shout out to everyone that gets that reference. Wonderful. Okay. (laughs) You can shout everyone else out. (laughs) I will shout everybody else out because I don't get the reference. Um, Guess what else? (laughs) Oh, my God. You've got so much news. I have no idea. I have so much news. Um, Quebec is not the only province that can use the notwithstanding clause. Oh, that is such a good piece of news. Tell me more. (laughs) So for folks who haven't been paying attention, uh, the government of Ontario is using the notwithstanding clause to get over a a ruling, the notwithstanding clause of uh, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, of course, to get out of a court ruling that ruled that there are changes to the Election Act, which would change how parties are able to get funded by Um, different groups, including, and most importantly, unions, um, kind of uh, taking away uh, the the current impact that unions have, are able to have on elections, um, and I guess reserving all such impact for uh, the corporate world, (laughs) um, as conservatives are wont to do. Um, uh, They're using the notwithstanding clause uh, to get over a ruling that a judge made that uh, their changes to the Election Act were unconstitutional Mm. to, to force that change through. So this is the first time that Ontario 
is using this clause uh, to uh, to get past a, an unconstitutional ruling. There's a whole lot to say about this. Uh, the 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 bill itself is really bad. I mean, it doubles the amount of money people can give to the parties, uh, which undoes a lot of the changes that the Liberals did trying to cut, like get uh, election spending under control. And it also, uh, Sandy, as you mentioned, it, it will probably hurt unions' ability to come together on certain causes. But it actually, it's not just that. It's an attack on the the free expression of any citizens coming together and campaigning before an election on any issue that they that they think is important because when you come together and you advocate on an issue you kind of become a de facto third party under the election law and the election law as it stood before this law was passed made the pre-electorate period 6 months and so if you had any issues-based campaign uh, and, and and you, under the elections law, were considered a third party, then you had to abide by all of these regulations about your spending um, and about what you're disclosing. What Doug Ford is doing is he's now doubled the pre-election period to a year, meaning three out of four years are not election periods, but then one is. And then all of a sudden, all of the, uh, you know, campaigns that might happen, calling out whatever issue people want to call out, uh, falls under third party legislation. But what makes it even worse is that that third parties cannot use the same vendors. They cannot, um, they cannot work together on campaigns. And so it just gets really confusing. I wrote an article about this being like, the way that the law sounds, uh, it makes it sound like, if you had one campaign group and another campaign group using the same toilet paper is like Cascades, the toilet paper company, all of a sudden violating this law. And how much are you expected to as a videographer, as an animator, as a campaigner to know about the budget of the people who have hired you? There's a lot of holes in this legislation and there's a lot of people who are really angry about this legislation. But uh, as you said, he has invoked the notwithstanding clause. And I, I don't know. Like, I've I've always thought that Section 33 is like proof that our Constitution is a complete joke. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine you yeah. have a similar kind of thought. <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. I remember like when this uh, first popped up, a, a bunch of people contacted me being like, he can't do this, can he? He can't do this. <laughs> Just like, yeah, that's um, that's totally how the charter even passed is <laughs> <laughs> the fact that he absolutely 100% can do this. <laughs> so, you know, leave it to Ford to, to finally start invoking this. But this, you know, this other provinces have used this before, including uh, most notably Quebec. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's shit. He's trying to, again, undermine um, the... Uh, dem- what little democratic process we already have and sort of implement some sort of American style elections forever yeah. <laughs> situation in Ontario, which is just, I'm already tired thinking about it. <laughs> so this isn't our main topic, but this is another, uh, you know, thing that we should just be aware of and know that's happening. Um, and it's probably now that it has happened, uh, I think we can expect it to happen much more often in Ontario. Yeah, I think that the way that we need to look at the notwithstanding clause is it's like this is a fatal flaw in our Constitution. And, you know, as you alluded to, the like Quebec never even signed the Constitution. So there's a whole bunch of other problems with our Constitution. But we, we wave around the Charter of Rights and Freedoms as being proof 
that we have all of these freedoms protected by law and that we can always go to the Supreme Court and challenge law that is, you know, that we would argue violates our our uh, collective rights. And so you can look at you know the case of uh, the, the 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 Saskatchewan Federation of Labor brought to the Supreme Court, where they were fighting for their right to strike to be recognized because the the government of Saskatchewan was trying to crush the right to strike, and that was seen as this, as this great victory. But Section thirty three is always this escape hatch. It's always there that any government can be like, you know what? We don't care what the courts say. Fuck the courts. We're actually passing this, and it's always. I mean, Quebec gets a lot of, of like the reputation of being the 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 province that like invokes Section thirty three. They just did it um, on a very not controversial and like questionable in terms of its like utility kind of piece of legislation around protecting the French language and calling Quebec a nation. And they also did it on Bill twenty one. Um, which is the is the religious symbols ban, but but all provinces, I mean, not all provinces, but but there have been uses of Section thirty three throughout the history of its existence. What I think puts us in a different location now is that we have go- uh, governments that don't actually care about decorum and they don't actually care about the optics of crushing someone's like human rights. And, and, you know, part of this, I think is a Trump effect, right? Where we just saw a president just be like, fuck everything. I don't give a rat's ass. And, and it's, it's a, a government like that. Doug Ford is a really good example where it's like, Ooh, wow. Maybe this is a seriously fucking bad idea to have this in our constitution. Ooh, like was the only thing protecting us from everything being invoked under Section 33 was just like the goodwill of politicians. Shit, that seems like a bad idea. It's a bad way to to like premise a the Constitution <laughs> constitutionality. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it's shit. Okay, guess what else? Um, well, I mean, knowing this, uh, law school would probably be dropped to like one year. Is that the other piece of news? Because like the, it just it's just <laughs> Section 33 everything. What the hell do you even have to go to law school for? <laughs> oh, my God. Could you imagine if that was the case in America? Ooh, <laughs> things would be so much faster here <laughs> if there was this lovely fascist escape hatch. Um, <laughs> no, uh, it is. Uh, this, Nora, what the fuck is happening with the Green Party? Oh, my God. <laughs> so good. This, again, is not our main story, <laughs> but whoa, was I ever confused this week because what the fuck is happening with the Green Party? <laughs> Just, I, there seems to be some internal implosion. And the official story is that, okay, so um, the, there's like some internal strife and it is related to um, the 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 what was just happening uh, in Palestine, the uh, intense ratcheting up of um, of military action by uh, by Israel uh, in in Palestine, and uh, the Green Party leader Hanami Paul's response to it not being strong enough in support of Palestinians. I think her her comments were that there, that there should be a ceasefire. And then a particular MP being particularly upset about this because that MP had publicly spoken uh, about uh, uh, her support for Palestine. And she was so upset. This is the official story, okay? She was so upset by this that she defects to the Liberal Party 
which is where for me, everything fell apart. <laughs> it was just like, who's leaving the Green Party to join um, uh, the, the Liberal Party who is, okay, staunch supporters of Israel because they're upset <laughs> at lack of support for Palestine. And I was like, everything about this story spells there's a lot more going on underneath the hood that isn't being discussed in like official channels. In addition to probably racism <laughs> and misogynoir. But tell, tell me more, Nora, like what is your take? Because I have some thoughts, but it is like the official story is not it. <laughs> it's not jiving with your thoughts, which makes no, sense. No, it's not jiving with the thoughts. <laughs> um, okay, so I think, first of all, reminder to listeners that we have an episode on the Green Party and on the future of the Green Party, and it would be very good for you all to go back and listen to that, um, in which we argue that there is no future for the Green Party. And I think this episode of their uh, current um, implosion is perhaps a- an example of why. Um, I don't know where the story should start. And I, I know a bit more about what's going on here than um, I might otherwise, just because I joined the Green Party to vote for Dimitri Lascaris, who's a socialist and who um, came second to Annami Paul. And the 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 race was very weird. Um, so you've got a party with three MPs. And Jenikin Atwin and Paul Manley were, from what I could see, and I'm, I wasn't, like, involved or anything. So, I mean, this is what it was looking like at it from a casual kind of observing kind of position. They didn't seem to be anywhere in the in the race discussions. They didn't – I don't think they endorsed any candidates. I never really saw them say anything about the candidates. And I thought that that was so strange because it's like this is a political party. The, the, the elected folks are actually really, really important. And, of course, neither of them ran for leadership. Um, and so that meant that the person who was going to win was obviously going to be someone that didn't have a seat. Um, and so – You've got Annamie and you have Dimitri, and Annamie has the support of Elizabeth May, who's, of course, the former uh, leader of the Green Party. Um, and the context with that is, is May had just been, uh, I mean, there was a couple of, of the last years of, of her leadership where she was accused of racism very directly in, in a couple of different situations. Now, Dimitri's background on the party was really focused on Palestinian rights. And thanks to activists like him and other people in the party, the Greens did develop like the best policy in Canada of any political party at the federal level on Palestine. Now, they um, there was a lot of candidates. I think there was something like 12 or 15 candidates. It almost goes to the last ballot, if not the second last ballot, to, to actually determine the winner. And Annamie wins by not a whole lot more than Dimitri, but she wins and she's the leader. And so um, then you start to get these senses that, like, maybe Elizabeth May is still playing a role and maybe the role that she's playing is shit. <laughs> and so there was, like, mm-hmm. rumors that May was meddling with uh, with Paul's leadership, which I, I don't, don't doubt, I mean, at all. Um, Annami Paul announces that she's running in Toronto Centre. Now she runs in a by-election. That makes tons of sense. Like, you know, you're a leader of a party. You're probably going to run as much as you can to just get your name out there. She does better than a lot of people expect. Um, but then announces that she's going to run in that part, that that riding, like, for the the next general election, which is basically, like, just announcing that she's never going to get elected. So yeah. weird. Toronto Centre can't win that. <laughs> yeah, why Toronto Centre? Cannot win. No. Um, and then in April... And I don't know if she'd announced this before April, but I saw there was news again in April about this. 
Elizabeth May announces she's running again. And it's like, uh, what about Paul? Like, isn't your new leader, Annamy Paul, isn't, doesn't it make the most sense to have her run in like as safe a riding as you can get in Canada? This seems really weird. And so, you know, these kinds of like... And for a party that often only has one MP, (laughs) you know, elected, it kind of makes sense for it to be Elizabeth May's writing. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's like the only option. Like, the most optimistic that you can get other than May's writing herself, and, you know, Antwin and Manley aren't necessarily going to give up their seats... It would be like maybe Guelph, Ontario, but like even that is a liberal stronghold at the at the regular times. Of course, the provincial government, uh, the provincial representative right now is a is a green MPP, the first one of the province. But I mean, even that would be very difficult, I think, for her to win. Um, and so this all comes to a head uh, at the same time as Annamy Paul's staff person, like declaring publicly that he's going to unseat Antwin and manly because of their positions on Palestine. Now that is a crucial part of the story. Yeah. <laughs> that was isn't really being uh, reported very widely. Like it, it is in some some articles, but in most of them they're not. And it, it just it's a really crucial part of the story yeah. that helps to underpin why Atwin actually left and maybe that uh, and also helps to spell out that maybe um, Palestinian rights isn't her number one priority. Um, But yeah, for for somebody who works for the party to say we are going to be working against our candidates (laughs) in the next election. (laughs) I mean, that I that should be the headline. But then also enemy Paul wearing um, wearing this, like what this person said, why? why? <laughs> From what I can tell, that person no longer works for the party, which was a direct result uh, of what he did. And so anyway, why? Like what would... Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Well, and this is where like misogynoir comes back in a major way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Anime has been uh, very openly... Um, very open and, and, and often referred to uh, in relation to her her faith because she's Jewish. And during the election, it came out a lot that she's a Zionist. And so that obviously kind of raised some eyebrows considering the party policy. Now, I, I don't know at what point this staffer got hired. I don't know if it's her staffer or if it's a party staffer or whatever. But she didn't fire him immediately. There was a lot of campaigning that went from members to get him fired. And uh, like they produced uh, a 1500 uh, uh, named uh, petition to Paul to fire him. So uh, and I saw some of the emails of that because I'm a member. So I was I saw a couple of like, we need to mobilize and, and all this kind of stuff. And it wasn't directed at her. It was directed at uh, at her staff person. But of course, this then exits the, the 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 party realm and he's fired. And this is Paul like responding to her members and being the leader. And then Antwin crosses the floor and the whole thing becomes this is a failure of Annamy Paul's leadership. Um, now, Paul says that she understood that Antwin was speaking with the liberals for a long time, which I don't doubt. Um, I mean, anyone whose politics are so thin that they're going from the Greens to the liberals, like, is obviously confused in a lot of very important yeah. ways. But, 100%. <laughs> but yeah, but her wearing this um, in the way that she has worn this. Um, I, I And I mean, she's she she went through, I should have mentioned at the beginning, she went through like a leadership challenge. Like there was a whole, like that, that's a really deep um 
you know, like it is as though she was the one who announced that she was going to be working <laughs> against yeah. uh, uh, can't her own candidates in the next election. Yeah, yeah, and so and so how the how this is being publicly broadcast, um, and then without that little question, like where is Elizabeth May in all of this? Because it seems that. When nothing makes sense, like that means there's a lot of stuff happening behind the scenes <laughs> because yep. you just can't see. It's like that makes no sense what is happening behind the scenes. And I, yeah, and that's where that's where my knowledge, I guess, or my kind of what I've been able to glean from this whole situation completely ends. Uh, and then I go back into guessing as to what this might all, all be about, which I'm, I'm sure you also have some pretty solid guesses, too. Yeah, I have some guesses. I think that, um, you know, judging by the reports from the beginning of her leadership, that uh, people generally were unsure about her (laughs) and have been responding to undermine her leadership uh, since the beginning, it appears. Uh, It also appears that perhaps uh, as the um, official, I guess, the establishment choice um, that, you know, the Greens, the Greens span a whole bunch of different types of uh, political orientations on the left. They're not all, you know, like they're not all focused on the same particular um, way of doing things, I suppose. And so that can cause some healthy debate within the party. But that isn't doesn't seem like this debate or any sorts of debates have been very help- healthy because uh, this new leadership, I suppose, is, you know, I'm just guessing now, really, uh, it seems like an opportunity perhaps for certain people and maybe uh, like a place where uh, folks can maneuver um, uh, a different type of politic. I'm not sure. But either way, um, uh, Annami Paul isn't... Um, clearly isn't respected by party members in the same way that Elizabeth May was. And Mm -hmm. uh, the way that um, she is being uh, challenged very publicly, and she's been pretty open about saying people have been challenging me uh, in a way that I haven't seen other leaders be challenged. Um, it, it, It could point to a whole bunch of different things. I think the fact that she is uh, being called to, to where, um, how, uh, how her staff person spoke about uh, these these other candidates is uh, an example of misogynoir for sure. And leaving that particular piece out of the story also is like I think that that is really uh, crucial to to know about. Um, but I also just think that there's clearly a lot going on here that. Um, you know, we don't have the full picture on. So, and the one thing that I'll just I'll just mention too, because I do think it's important, is that the the, the federal leadership council or whatever, like the group of people that cannot manage the the federal party, like they're all May appointees as well, and so like Paul has to like navigate a council of people who were appointed by Elizabeth May. And you got to expect that that's not going to be very easy if May is not happy with the fact that. Antwin has crossed the floor, um, like regardless of whether or not Paul had anything to do with that, right? And it's you know you just go back to this idea that someone like is <laughs> someone's turned to the liberals for the question of Palestinian rights, and like that's not a reliable narrator <laughs> in this story <laughs> at all. Okay, so what we actually came here to talk to you about today, <laughs> um, <laughs> Nora. I feel like in society, we always have choices when it comes to trying to make sure 
people are doing the things that they're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. And I think in our society, we choose, we, I mean, the powers that be choose the carceral option all too often. Like, I think it is a fundamental flaw in our culture, in this colonized culture, that the carceral option is the first, uh, the most often used. Mm. And I think that we should recognize that when we see it and know that it wasn't the inevitable choice. I'm speaking really broadly and abstractly, and I'm going to um, provide an example to tell you what I mean. And before you do that, like, can you like define that for me? Because I, uh, I'm always the like, what, what is car- what is a carceral option? A carceral option is to me when I'm thinking about carceral, I'm talking about um, like punishment, the punitive option. Uh, something that is like that is going to restrain and punish you if you don't do something the way I want you to do something, the way that society wants you to do something. Does that make sense? I think it does because I like I see the I see the word uh, used a lot to talk about different kinds of ideas, right? Carceral feminism. What is carceral feminism? Mm-hmm. And and oftentimes people don't back up to necessarily say it's like well, it's a feminism that says that you know we should put people in jail if they are doing X, Y, and Z. Um, mm-hmm. And so, and so, yeah, so this is what we're going to talk about for the rest of the episode. And we're going to specifically talk about COVID, but, um, you know, hopefully we'll get to some time where we can kind of branch out from that and really talk about kind of general society as well. And it is so funny because it's like you know, so much of this starts really, really young in all of our lives mm-hmm. where you're like sent to the office <laughs> because you've upset somebody (laughs) or something, you know, or if you're on the other side of that, you know, and I can think of um, when I was in grade two and I kicked my friend in the stomach because she said I had a crush on someone and she was right, but she shouldn't have said that. And she just had stitches. And so she freaked out and ran right to the principal to tell on me. And I thought, I am fucked. That was the, she chose the carceral option rather than trying to be like, (laughs) Nora, why did you just kick me? And I'd be like, what the fuck are you telling everyone that I have a crush on that guy for? (laughs) <laughs> I mean, she, it didn't have to be the carceral option of telling someone no. didn't get you in trouble, right? But it, <laughs> in any case, um, the the example that I'm going to use, I too have examples from my youth um, because I hated coloring uh, in <laughs> when I was in kindergarten <laughs> and got, you know, I got placed in timeouts because I didn't want to fucking color. <laughs> coloring was so <laughs> annoying to me. But in any case... The example that I want to use is COVID. Yes, it's COVID related. So I have a colleague who traveled recently. And upon coming back, had to spend some time in the quarantine hotel. And then was eventually told that they could finish their quarantine uh, at home. uh, But they were required to stay at home for the required 14 days. This colleague of mine works nights and is awake uh, during the night and asleep during the day. One day during this quarantine, this colleague of mine gets a letter at the front door. It says that they missed a 
a checkup, a random checkup by a screening officer who was meant to ensure that they were home at the time that they had their random checkup. Now, again, they, they sleep during the day. And so the, the time that this person came was the screening officer came was apparently like nine 30 in the morning or something like that. And so they simply just didn't hear the knock at the door. Um, but they get this letter and this is what the letter says. It's like, um, a screening officer came to your location to verify that you are in quarantine. You did not answer the door reminder. And it explains the quarantine rules, what you're supposed to do. And then it says in all caps, what happens now? Your name, all caps, bold in larger font than everything else will <laughs> be referred to law enforcement for further follow-up. Uh, a law enforcement officer may visit your quarantine location. If you are not complying with all quarantine requirements, you may be subject to enforcement. This means a ticket of up to $3,000, admission into a federal quarantine facility, six months in prison, and or fines up to $750,000. If you choose to break your mandatory quarantine, you resulting in the death or bodily harm of another person, you can face a fine of up to $1 million, imprisonment of up to three years, or, and this is a separate bullet point to be clear, both. <laughs> okay. Wow. Wow. You know, what's so, you know, what's so funny about that is it's like, this is the letter being like, we are not fucking around. But if you think about it for like three seconds, you're like, whoa, you guys are really fucking around. Yeah, <laughs> this is, I mean, <laughs> on so many levels, this is awful. It's, it really is uh, treating people, I mean, subjecting people to, to random checkups as though they're, uh, you know, like literally are under some sort of house arrest, like the most carceral that we could think of in this sort of situation is really bizarre. And then not thinking that people have different, uh, like fucking schedules, even like subjecting them to a, to a similar schedule, uh, for, for everyone is also bizarre. And then moving immediately for, Oh, didn't get let in the door. Nobody answered the door. We are going to send you this threatening letter. Send your name off to law enforcement for further surveillance. I, I just feel like there are other ways to approach ensuring that a community mm. is healthy during a pandemic that doesn't involve this yeah. level of ridiculousness. Yeah, it, it, Canada has not had great quarantine policies this entire pandemic, and we have seen some of the results of that. And we also know that, like, when someone does break the law, um, and I'm thinking of these two wealthy piece of shit who uh, flew into uh, a First Nations community on the West Coast, I forget exactly where, but they um, they went to get their vaccine first by just showing up there. And then, of course, no one in town would give them a ride to the airport, so they had to walk home. <laughs> Um, they were only fined $2,300 each oh my God. for having done that. Yeah. Yeah. So to imagine that your colleague would be fined up to a million dollars if uh, if it was found that that person that, that they 
infected someone, I guess, is, is the implication of that letter. It's it's pretty disproportionate. And, and, you know, we've got so many exemptions from people coming in and coming out that it isn't the folks in these kinds of quarantines that that the government needs to be the most concerned with because they also have to prove negative test results at least twice. Because I actually have a friend in the same situation uh, right now in Montreal who just who just came back to Canada. And um, and it's really tough because this is someone who's like, I really support this. Like, I, I get why the borders are being controlled like this. But like, why am I being like, l- like, basically, yeah, under house arrest at the place that this person is quarantining? And it, it it's like as i said it just points to how little the government actually is doing and then they rely on these threats and and the state security apparatus to follow up because presumably what your colleague's going to get a phone call from the cops and be like where were you the morning of wednesday uh, june uh, whatever at 9:30 it's like oh yeah so like true story i was asleep oh okay or I don't like the way you're looking at me. No, you weren't. Or prove you were asleep. Okay, here's my social media. I didn't send any messages there. You know, like it just it there's just it's a dead end. It's a complete dead end. And it's like, what is the outcome? Is it to find creative reasons to throw more people in jail, or is it to make sure that people are not spreading COVID? Because if it's the latter, I can think of a whole other bunch of better ways for us to make sure people are respecting their quarantine and not being placed under house arrest, but um, being able to, I don't know, check in with someone or make sure that those negative test results stay negative over a period of time or something. But we know that the the groups of people that actually are causing these kinds of big outbreaks, of course, the, the, the P3 variant, which is, I think, the Delta, Beta, I think it's the Gamma variant... <laughs> The the Delta. No, the the, the, oh. the original variant from Brazil um, came to Canada from one of like someone who was probably. I mean, this is all we're not sure, but this is like reading between the lines of of how the this big P three outbreak happened in the West Coast was probably from someone who was exempted from quarantine because they were doing work related travel, and it's just like what what why do we have thirty three exemptions to these to these rules? That's what that's my question. Why are the exemptions so? enormous to these rules and then the people who are not exempt you subject them to house arrest like where's the proportionality yeah and so this like you know this carceral option seems to me to be like literally the worst option of 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 everything because in let's say like again you know we've talked about this so many times but think about all of the reasons why someone may need to break quarantine or may want to break quarantine like you probably want to know about it as a public health official. This situation right here forces people to try to hide if they don't have uh, any alternative. They're going to try to do what they can to hide from the government the fact that they need to break quarantine. Or they, they think that they... Um, you know, or are understanding rules incorrectly and think that that's the only option that they have. Wouldn't it be better to, to have a fully non-carceral way of doing things that says, hey, you must stay at home. This is really, really important. And rather than paying for law enforcement and uh, for this new apparatus where we can like, um, you know, spy on you to make sure that you're um, in in the right place. And if you're not, we're going to like arrest you and fine you and then come after you with money that you may not even have. <laughs> like instead of doing the carceral option, what if it was like you must stay at home and if for any reason you feel as though you can't, here is like a hotline or a person that you can call to see if we can figure out a way to accomplish what you need to accomplish with 
without you harming other people or in a way where you don't have to break quarantine at all. Like, non-carceral option. <laughs> like, let's yeah. assume that you are not trying to um, kill all of the people around you and assume that the fact that you have to break quarantine or you think that you have to break quarantine is uh, is innocent, is fully innocent. And let's see if we can figure this out for you. Like, mm-hmm. why wouldn't that be the the prior, like the number one option instead of the carceral option? <laughs> you know what I mean? And this is true for so many things. Like, the, uh, I was reading this story uh, this morning in the Toronto Star about a child who two years ago had decided to end his life. And part of his decision, uh, this child who's, I, I think, 12 years old, part of his decision was based on the fact that he had um, uh, and s- somehow gotten a hold of some sort of game console that belonged to some other child at school. And he was using it for a while and then returned it of his own volition. But nonetheless, the powers that be uh, suggested that the police might get involved in the fact that he had had this game console. And this child, you know, decides to take his life, you know, like, is there not another way that we could deal with these sorts of things? Do you know, is, you know, whether, um, as you mentioned, like this stuff starts really young, whether we're really young or older, this idea of carcerality makes it um, so that people... <sighs> have to go through so many different strategies to try to take care of themselves when their options are limited. And we have other choices. We can use other strategies to try to create a healthy society. And I think at this point, we know that the carceral option does not create healthy societies. We are living in a wildly unhealthy society. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I think it depends on what is the point of the carceral option being the one that is so quickly reached to. And I think like I don't, I don't think I'm you know sure you agree with me, but I don't think it actually has anything to do with community safety. I think it's all about giving the state security apparatus the cover for it being effective. Because if we actually were serious about how ineffective prisons are or how ineffective the way that parole works is or fines or whatever, then we would be getting rid of them. We would be looking at the criminal system and saying, hmm, this doesn't seem to be working. Maybe we should try something different. And instead of that, it's like, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, We need the police for literally fucking everything. I don't know, Sandy, if you saw last week in the city of Toronto, a llama got loose Oh, I, I I saw um, a video of the llama on the highway. Yes. <laughs> Did you see the video of the people trying to corral the llama? I don't think I. Uh, oh wait, uh, with police cars, right? Yeah, flashing yes, lights I and did. driving all over the place. Oh my god! Why would the police? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, the police are now also animal control experts. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Well, the llama was expert in, you know, getting through those police cars, just being like, what the <laughs> fuck are y'all doing? <laughs> and just having 
the time of its life on the highway. <laughs> yeah. Being like, whoa, yeah. they're, 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 they're flashing their lights at me. They must want me to run faster. The <laughs> like, llama doesn't care about your authority, okay, Officer fucking Scott. <laughs> the llama doesn't care. And it was so funny because I was watching that and I was thinking, um, like, I, I have family who are in farming. And, and once when the cows got, like, out of, of the field, they, they took off through a broken fence. Um, my, my, my uncle had to hire, like, a ranching guy, like, to actually round them up and bring them back to his, his, uh, his field. And, it, and I'm just so I'm looking at this being like, sorry, where's the animal expert in llama wrangling? Like... It's not cops. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was just this really great example. And people are like, oh, look at all the police going to go get some llama. And it's like this is this is this is exactly the example. Like it is. This is a ridiculous example. And we can look at very serious and not ridiculous examples. But we don't even need to because we can see that police are called for so much. And the courts and Punitive measures are, are relied on so much to, quote unquote, correct behavior. And it's like, this is folly. This is all like completely fake. And all you're doing is you're just juicing up the authority that you want average people to think that the cops have, because if they no longer have authority, then like, you know, well, that'd be pretty sweet. And I think we should be working towards something like that. <laughs> but, you know. This is this is why um, like the best thinking right now is coming from activists and theorists and um, and and like people thinking about what replaces the carceral state. And I I get really excited when I when I can when I hear like people talking about this because it really opens up the opportunity the opportunities it opens up the possibilities and and really forces um, me to think of okay so then why would i rely on the, the the prison system as a way to handle violent crime for example it's it's you know the the last year in quebec there have been 13 femicides including this past week in quebec city and there, there was something like 190 recommendations made uh, to the provincial government last year for how yeah. they should be addressing violence against women. And a lot of the recommendations were quite, like, interesting, like a completely different tribunal to deal with sexual assaults and um, making sure that there's all these different services and, and making sure that, you know, um, that restraining orders aren't the only thing that people are relying on because restraining orders get broken. They're not enough, all this stuff, Right. And, of course, the government hasn't implement, implemented any of them. And so a lot of groups are calling out Genevieve Guibault, who is the Minister of Public Safety in the province. But it's just like this this is a thread that runs through literally every single part of the law where you are finding yourselves inter, yourself interacting with police. And it's like, why why did you get called to this? Like fire, I understand when I call 911 why a fire truck shows up. And I appreciate that usually because usually when I'm calling 911, it's related to fire. In fact, I think that's the only reason why I've ever called 911. <laughs> mm -hmm. But the police, I mean, they're just always trying to find new ways to become relevant. And then all of a sudden they're like responding to llama wrangling. <laughs> yeah. it And it just for so many of the issues in our society, we've said it before, the police – well, sorry, I can't think of a single issue in our society <laughs> for which the police are effective. Like, I just, I can't think of one. And so to go um, to a carceral option 
uh, both policing and like the isolation of a person, you know, like the isolation and punishment of a person um, uh, for the purposes of safety during a pandemic seems ridiculous, but it also is ridiculous as a strategy for, um, you know, trying to control, because this is what uh, carceriality is often about, is about uh, controlling people, trying to control children or trying to control, uh, you know, let's think of another population that's often like people who live in poverty or trying to control um, people who use drugs. Like we do, we do not need to go to a, a carceral system or to punishment in order to take care of our communities. And in fact, I mean, fuck, our society really does understand this. I mean, it very rarely goes to the carceral option for, say, white collar crimes, Right. Like our society understands, like fully appreciates that for people who break societal norms, there is another option, because for those people that are highly valued, like uh, uh, people who are wealthy, they have all sorts of options all the time <laughs> of how to correct issues. Um, you know, even if they are literally, you know, stealing from the state in terms of uh, taxes and so on. But for someone who literally is, travels and is just trying to do their best to keep everybody around them safe, the the option that we go to first is uh, to treat them as though they're going to do everything that they can to thwart the system. Why? Why? Yeah, I, I just want my, my final thought is, is I'm going to bring up three examples of people who have just too much power to be thrown into the carceral system and how they've just not ever had to deal with it. The first is Scott Moe, who uh, killed someone while driving drunk. Um, and he's the premier of the province and didn't get thrown in jail or anything like that. And, you know, that's a good example of someone with some power and some access to power of being able to avoid that. Bringing it to COVID, you have like how many members of Jason Kenney's caucus were found at the Sky Palace, not respecting social distancing and not respecting public health orders. You know, again, had he just been an average guy, there'd probably be fines lev levied. There'd probably be other kinds of things that they would have to deal with within the whatever system is managing uh, violations to public health orders. Of course, it's Jason Kenney and his caucus. And so they just got publicly shamed. OK. And, you know, the publicly shaming someone is actually, I think, not terrible. Like that is actually one option that is not a carceral option where it's like, don't be this guy. Like and you're like, whoa, I, I don't want to be. And the third person that I want to mention, although I guess Kenny's caucus is more than one person, but whatever, um, is Marilee Fullerton. So Marilee Fullerton is a fucking piece of shit who was just in charge of like this system in Ontario where like 4,000 people died from COVID, right? It's called long-term care. And she has been a disaster. She's been rude. She's been, she's refused to listen to any criticism. She's absolutely not accepted any responsibility for 4,000 deaths in her, in the ministry that she oversees. And Doug Ford just shuffled cabinet and she was handed a new portfolio. Uh, she was handed a portfolio that is arguably 
way more difficult, way more complex, and with people who are so much more vulnerable, uh, which is the Ministry of Child and Community Services. And mm-hmm. so she's just like given new jobs, like no responsibility for anything that she oversaw. And she's never going to go to jail. She's never going to be on trial. Every single um, in- inquiry that's going to come out of COVID is to just not lay blame, right? It's going to just be to figure out what happened. And so, yeah, so fucking Miller, Miller until Marilee Fullerton finds herself like in jail, uh, like then we shouldn't be expecting anyone else to to be in that situation either. <laughs> 